This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm in love with that song. I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. Love that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. Welcome, friends. I'm Brad Page, host of the I'm in love with that song podcast. And this just happens to be the 150th episode of the podcast. So I wanted to do something different, something special with this episode. And one of the things that I've been wanting to do for a while is to pay tribute to Jeff Beck, the brilliant guitarist who died last year. Now, I could have rushed out an episode, but I wanted to do this right. Jeff Beck was a legend, an icon, an inspiration to millions of guitar players. And I believe he was the greatest rock guitarist of all time. So I wasn't just going to throw something together. Now, usually on this show, we dive into a specific song. We've also done shows where we take a look at a particular year or focus on a certain event or an individual album, but we've never done a retrospective on one artist's career until now. So for this, our 150th show, we're going to explore the extraordinary career of Jeff Beck. Why? Because you simply can't capture what made Jeff Beck great in one song or one album or even in one decade of his career. Because there is no guitarist in rock history, I repeat, no guitarist, whose style and technique evolved so much over time that by the end he was playing like nobody else on the planet. That was no coincidence. It was the result of a restless spirit who could never stay in one musical place for too long, someone who never stopped learning, who never stopped working on his playing, who just kept getting better. So let's explore the sound, the passion, and the fury of Jeff Beck. We'll be right back after this message. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, 
I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell ya, I have small ear canals, Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Jeffrey Arnold Beck was born June 24, 1944, near London. When he was six years old, he heard a song on the radio, How High the Moon, by Les Paul and Mary Ford. When he asked his mother what that sound was, she said, it's an electric guitar, as if Les Paul was somehow cheating by using technology. But that made Jeff even more fascinated. But it wasn't until Jeff was about 12 years old before he actually played a guitar for the first time. A friend had an acoustic guitar that he wasn't using, so Jeff borrowed it. And that guitar was missing some strings, but Jeff fashioned some using some wire from an old electric toy airplane. 
He saw the film The Girl Can't Help It, which featured Gene Vincent in the Blue Caps playing Bebopalula, and he was captivated by the playing of Cliff Gallup, the guitarist for the Blue Caps. Gallup would be a big influence on Jeff. Jeff built his first electric guitar himself out of wood and parts that he scrounged together. He used to carry it around without a case, even strapping it to his back when he rode his bike so that people would see it. He wanted to be known as a guitar player. It was around this time that Jeff's sister told him about this other kid in the neighborhood who also played guitar and decided to introduce them. That other kid happened to be Jimmy Page. Jimmy said there was a knock on the door one day, and there was Jeff's sister with Jeff holding his homemade guitar. They immediately became friends. Jeff joined his first band, The Bandits, in 1960 when he was 16, and then joined the Deltones. He bought his first Fender Stratocaster around this time. It's a big deal. And in 1963, Ian Stewart, who was playing piano for the Rolling Stones, turned Jeff on to the blues, and Jeff was particularly struck by Buddy Guy, who had become another major influence on Jeff. He eventually joined the Tridents, and this is where he really started making a name for himself. By now, Jeff was playing a Fender Telecaster into a Vox AC30 Top Boost amp with a Benson Echo Rec and a fuzz box he made himself. Here's a recording of the Tridents playing Nursery Crime, recorded live in 1964. The Yardbirds had formed in 1963 with Keith Ralph on vocals and harmonica, Paul Samuel Smith on bass, Jim McCarty on drums, and Chris Drea and Top Topham on guitars. When Topham quit, they replaced him with a hot young guitarist named Eric Clapton. They were originally a straightforward blues bass band. But when they recorded the more radio-friendly For Your Love, that was a bridge too far for Clapton, who immediately quit. For your love. By then, Jimmy Page was an in-demand session player working in London's recording studios and playing on hit records. The Yardbirds asked Jimmy to join, but he wasn't interested. But Jimmy recommended his friend Jeff Beck for the job, and Beck became a member of the Yardbirds. He joined them just in time to work on their next single, Heart Full of Soul. The story goes that they had hired a sitar player to play on the song, but when they couldn't get it to sound right, Jeff said, let me just try it with my guitar. And using his Fender Esquire and a Sola Sound Tone Bender fuzz box, he put down on tape 
the first iconic Jeff Beck guitar part. Many other classic Yardbirds hits followed, including one of the all-time great psychedelic tracks, Shapes of Things, featuring two layered guitar solos incorporating feedback. Groundbreaking stuff. Another classic was Over Under Sideways Down, featuring an Eastern influence melody from Jeff. Jeff also played bass on this song. favorite Yardbird tracks is this one, an instrumental simply called Beck's Boogie that's a showcase for everything Jeff had to offer at this time, his tone, his creative playing, and his speed. But Jeff was always temperamental, accent on the temper. If a gig wasn't going well or he just didn't like his sound, he'd kick his amp over or walk off the stage. In May of 1966, five of the greatest British musicians got together in a London recording studio to form a supergroup that lasted for one song. The Yardbirds manager knew Jeff was unhappy and encouraged him to record some solo tracks, thinking that that would ease the frustration. At the same time, 
Drummer Keith Moon from The Who was feeling antsy and looking for a new opportunity. Jeff went over to Jimmy Page's house. Jimmy was playing his Fender 12-string electric, and they worked up a song that would become Beck's Bolero. A couple of days later, on May 16, Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page showed up at the studio. Keith Moon arrived in secret, wearing a disguise. Nicky Hopkins joined them on keyboards, and Jimmy brought in one of his session friends, John Paul Jones, to play bass. Jimmy played his electric 12-string, and Jeff played a Gibson Les Paul. At one point during the track, Keith Moon screams, and he hit the mic with his drumstick, just smashing the mic. From that point forward, all you can really hear of the drums is the cymbals. There was talk of them forming a band, but they didn't have a singer. Keith went back to The Who, Jeff went back to The Yardbirds, and the supergroup never happened. In June 1966, Paul Samuel Smith quit The Yardbirds. They had just finished recording the album that became known as Roger the Engineer. In my opinion, that's The Yardbirds' masterpiece. And they had gigs lined up. This time, Jimmy Page came to the rescue replacing Samwell Smith on bass, and on June 21st made his debut with the Yardbirds as their new bass player. It didn't take long for Chris Drea to realize Jimmy Page was just a much better guitar player than he was, so he switched to bass and Jimmy took over on guitar, creating one of the all-time great twin guitar lineups in history, Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page both playing together. It didn't last, though. Volatile and moody as ever, Jeff finally quit the Yardbirds in the middle of a U.S. tour in late 1966. The Yardbirds continued on as a quartet, with Jimmy handling all the guitar work. Unfortunately, there are only two tracks that feature the Beck Page lineup. Stroll On, which was featured in the 1967 film Blow Up, and Happenings Ten Years Time Ago, a psychedelic masterpiece with Jeff Beck conjuring up everything from police sirens to revving engines and bombs dropping. This track also features John Paul Jones on bass.
So by 1967, Jeff Beck found himself at a crossroads, a situation he would find himself in throughout his career. He'd left the Yardbirds, but what to do next? Mickey Most was one of Britain's most successful producers, and he figured he could turn Jeff Beck into a pop star. Mickey recorded three pop singles with Jeff, Hi-Ho Silver Lining, Tallyman, and Love is Blue. You're everywhere and nowhere, baby. But Jeff Beck was just not meant to be a pop star. He had no appetite for that side of the business. He started putting together his own band, starting with a lead singer named Rod Stewart and a guitarist, Ron Wood, who switched to bass. Mickey Waller joined them on drums, and the first Jeff Beck group was born. With the support of Peter Grant, who would become Led Zeppelin's manager, the Jeff Beck Group signed to Epic Records and released their first album, Truth, in July 1968. Whereas the Yardbirds mix blues with pop and psychedelia, the Jeff Beck Group's debut album is a slab of heavy blues rock, beating Led Zeppelin to the punch by about five months. You know you shook me. You shook me Their second album, Beckola, followed in June 1969. This album featured Tony Newman on drums with Nicky Hopkins on piano, and if anything, it's even heavier than its predecessor. I got a fear of Man, that's me. 
Both albums sold well, but the writing was on the wall and the band split up. They were supposed to play at Woodstock, but Jeff backed out. He didn't think they were good enough. Rod Stewart, Ron Wood, and Mick Waller would go on to record Stewart's first solo album, and then Stewart and Wood joined the Faces, but that's a story for another podcast. Meanwhile, Jeff formed a new Jeff Beck group and released two more albums in 71 and 72. Though both records have their moments, neither is particularly strong and didn't do particularly well either critically or commercially. The albums are most notable for introducing two musicians, Max Middleton on keyboards and a drummer named Cozy Powell. So Jeff broke up the band and tried his hand at another supergroup, teaming with bassist Tim Bogert and drummer Carmine Apice, who had played together in Vanilla Fudge and Cactus. Around this time, Stevie Wonder got Jeff to play on the song Looking for Another Pure Love, which would appear on Stevie's next album, Talking Book. One day, while messing around in the studio together, Stevie came up with the riff to Superstition. He finished writing the song with the intention of giving it to Jeff. But when Motown heard the song, they insisted that Stevie record it, put it on the album, and release it as a single. But Beck, Bogart, and Apice did record a version of it, and it's probably the highlight of the one studio album they released together. Oh, 
once again, egos and personality conflicts took over and the band split. So Jeff found himself at another crossroads. He wasn't really getting anywhere in terms of critical or commercial success. And he felt he was spinning his wheels creatively. Something had to change. So he went into the studio with Max Middleton, who played on the last couple of Jeff Beck Group albums, along with Phil Chen on bass and drummer Richard Bailey and a producer named George Martin, the same producer who worked with the Beatles, along with many others, including John McLaughlin's Mahavishnu Orchestra, who Jeff was really into at that point. Together, they produced an album that took Jeff into a totally new direction, a jazz-rock-funk fusion that was unique, didn't sound like anything else at that time. But it wasn't just the style of the music that changed. Jeff actually changed the way he played, a different way of approaching the guitar, reinventing his style and technique. The album was called Blow by Blow, and it turned out to be his most commercially successful album ever. An all-instrumental album, no vocals, that made it to number four on the Billboard chart and earned Jeff a whole new level of respect. Now, how did Jeff get from the harder, more straightforward rock of the Jeff Beck group and Beck, Bogart, and a piece to the jazz-tinged funk of the Blow by Blow album? Some of it must have come from working with Stevie Wonder. I'm sure that must have rubbed off on him. But there's also a forgotten chapter in Jeff's history which contributed here. When Jeff was rehearsing for his appearance with David Bowie, the famous final Ziggy Stardust show at the Hammersmith Odeon in 1973, he heard a band jamming in another room and went to check them out. It was a three-piece funk band called Up, spelled U-P-P, a drummer, a bass player, and a keyboard player. He really liked them and played with them on a BBC show called Five Faces of the Guitar in August 1974. You can find that show on YouTube if you want to check it out. And when Up signed to CBS Records, Jeff produced their first album. He also plays on the album too, but to my knowledge, this was the only artist Jeff ever produced. He obviously thought that they had something, and you can imagine him pulling some inspiration from their funk sound. Let's listen to a little bit of up. One night, uh, to get down in the night.
That's the band Up from their first album produced by Jeff Beck, with Jeff guesting on guitar there. Let's look at a couple of tracks from the Blow by Blow album. This is my personal favorite Jeff Beck album. I can't say for sure, but from what we know, Jeff was probably using his 1954 Gibson Les Paul with an Ampeg VT40 amp, Crybaby wah-wah pedal, Color Sound Overdrive, and a ZB Custom volume pedal. One of the standout cuts on the album is a song called Thelonious, written by Stevie Wonder. And though he's not credited on the album, Stevie actually plays clavinet on this track. Another fan favorite is Freeway Jam, which became a staple of Jeff's live performances. Seems pretty clear to me he's playing a Fender Stratocaster on this one. The outstanding moments on the album is Cause We've Ended as Lovers, also written by Stevie Wonder. Another one of Jeff's favorite guitarists was Roy Buchanan. Jeff dedicated this song to Roy, and you can hear Roy's influence on Jeff's playing here. This is one of Jeff's greatest performances, and the song remained part of his live gigs for years. On this track, I believe Jeff was playing a modified Fender Telecaster with Seymour Duncan humbucking pickups installed in it.
we will pause here for a quick break, and then we'll be right back. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. This is Tal Wilkenfeld, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Jeff hit the road in 1975, touring with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. He returned to the studio with George Martin to record his next album, Wired. This time, the band featured Jan Hammer on Synthesizer. He played a key role in the sound of this album, pushing the music further into the jazz fusion direction. Jeff toured with the Jan Hammer group in 1976, and they recorded a live album together. Here's another track from the Wired album. This is Jeff's version of the Charles Mingus classic, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. Jeff recorded one more album in the jazz fusion arena called There and Back in 1980, and then he went quiet for a few years. His next album came out in 1985 called Flash. It's kind of a hodgepodge, probably his most commercially oriented album. It's also my least favorite Jeff Beck album. He got the feeling that Jeff was at another crossroads, not sure where to go next. 
so he just retreated from the public eye again. But he didn't stop playing. In fact, his playing went through the most radical reinvention yet. He stopped using a pick, developing his own unique finger style. And he developed a way of incorporating the Stratocaster's vibrato arm, the whammy bar, into his playing that was entirely unique. Sui generis, unlike anything else. This was not the Van Halen dive bombs or the Hendrix freakouts. This was an extremely controlled use of the vibrato, using sustain, feedback, and a surgical-like use of the whammy bar to create microtones. Notes between the notes, sounds you shouldn't be able to make on a guitar. It took years of painstaking work for him to develop this way of playing. I'm simply in awe of it. This technique was in full display on his next album, Jeff Beck's Guitar Shop, released in 1989. This album features Tony Hymas on keyboards and legendary drummer Terry Bozio. And it's another left turn for Jeff's career, incorporating the sounds and technology of the 80s into his music. But the highlight of the record is a track called Where Were You that fully displays his new approach to playing. Using just the volume control on his Strat along with the vibrato arm, he manipulates fretted notes and harmonics to produce a hauntingly beautiful vocal-like sound. Jeff went on a co-headlining tour with Stevie Ray Vaughan, and it was very successful, but when it was over, he stepped back again, this time due to his increasing issues with tinnitus, a severe ringing in the ears. Jeff spent the next few years doing occasional session work and guest appearances, turning up on records by John Bon Jovi and Roger Waters. Then, in 1992, 
he released two almost simultaneous projects, and they couldn't be more different. One of them was the soundtrack to a TV series called Frankie's House. The other was a tribute to his original guitar hero, Cliff Gallup, an album of Gene Vincent covers called Crazy Legs. Here, he sets aside all of his newly developed technique and pays tribute to Gallup by emulating that classic sound and style. Occasional session work followed in one big tour in 1995 with Santana, but we didn't get any new music until 1999 when he released Who Else, the first of three albums inspired by electronica and bands like The Prodigy. It was also the first album where Jeff worked with another guitarist, Jennifer Batten. Jennifer was one of the most sought-after hired gun guitarists in the late 80s and 90s. She toured with Michael Jackson for 10 years. But Jeff was one of her heroes, and she jumped at the chance to work with him. Jennifer was a major contributor to the album and co-wrote the song, What Mama Said. That album was followed a year later by You Had It Coming, an album that again featured Jennifer Batten with a guest appearance by Imogene Heap on a version of the old Muddy Waters classic, Rollin' and Tumblin'. Well, if the river's a whiskey, now's a diving This album also features what I think is one of Jeff's crowning achievements, a simply stunning track called Nadia. He had heard the track originally recorded by Nitin Sani and was fascinated by the female vocal melody.
This vocal style makes use of microtones that aren't part of our Western musical notation. These are notes that aren't playable on a traditional guitar. But Jeff, using his meticulous vibrato bar technique, painstakingly learned that vocal melody phrase by phrase. I can't even begin to explain the complexity and difficulty of pulling off something like this. But Jeff did it and would continue to do it as part of his live show. Jeff released a third electronica-themed album simply called Jeff in 2003, which included another of his vocal adaptations, this time drawing inspiration from the Bulgarian female vocal choir on a track called Bulgaria. That was a very fertile period for Jeff, releasing three albums within four years. He hadn't been that prolific since the early 70s. But after that last album, he stepped back again. He did release a live album in 2008 that's one of my top favorite Jeff Beck records. It's called Live at Ronnie Scott's, and Jeff is just brilliant on that album. It features an amazing version of the Beatles song, A Day in the Life, which he won a Grammy for, for Best Rock Instrumental Performance.
In 2009, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the second time. As a solo artist, he was already inducted as a member of the Yardbirds. In 2010, he returned with his 10th studio album called Emotion and Commotion. Half of those tracks featured guest vocalists like Joss Stone and Amelda May. The other half were instrumentals. Here's one called Hammerhead. Absolutely ferocious. Jeff was 65, 66 years old when this record came out, and he was still as fierce a player as ever. But, of course, he could also be incredibly delicate. The same album includes a beautiful version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. That, along with other tracks on this album, were recorded in the studio with a live 64-piece orchestra. Six years later, in 2016, he released what would be his final solo album, a record called Loud Hailer. And this is one of my favorite Jeff Beck studio albums. Jeff had heard these two women, vocalist Rosie Bones and guitarist Carmen Vandenberg. They have a band called Bones UK. And Jeff liked what he heard and asked them to collaborate on this album. Now, let me point out one thing that's worth noting here. Going back to Jeff's work with Jennifer Batten through his tours featuring the great bass players Tal Wilkenfeld and Rhonda Smith to this album where he shared the spotlight with Rosie and Carmen, Jeff was a real supporter of women musicians not just for novelty or eye candy. These were all women who could really play and deserve to be there. But he gave these women a chance in the spotlight and brought them in front of new audiences around the world. He deserves some credit for that. Almost all of the tracks on Loud Hailer are co-written by Jeff, Carmen, and Rosie and shows, once again, Jeff fitting his style into a modern context. 
Jeff would release one more album, kind of a one-off duo with Johnny Depp in July 2022. And then, on January 10th, 2023, Jeff Beck died from a bacterial meningitis infection. He was 78 years old. It was a shock in the guitar playing community. Virtually every guitarist you can think of paid tribute to Jeff. There have been many great guitar players. I believe Jeff was the greatest. There are many reasons why. I won't go through them all, but here's just one reason. Jeff never stopped getting better. His playing grew and changed and improved. Let's look at most of the iconic players. Of course, Jimi Hendrix died young, so we don't know what his playing would be like now. Same for Randy Rhodes and Stevie Ray Vaughan. But let's look at Eric Clapton who I really admire as a player. But some people think his playing peaked with Cream in the 60s. Others think it peaked in the 70s. But either way, if you listen to Eric Clapton today, has he evolved much since then? Let's look at Jimmy Page, again another player who I absolutely love. But has he done anything that surpassed his work in the 70s? What about Eddie Van Halen? His guitar playing shook the world in 1978. But from then to his death in 2020, can you honestly say his playing radically improved or changed? I don't hear it. No disrespect meant to Eddie, or to Brian May, or Tony Iommi, Steve Vai, Joe Satriani, Steve Morse, Joe Bonamassa. They may all be better technical players in terms of speed or knowing more theory, but none of them, no one, revamped revised, rebuilt their style and technique from the ground up as much or as often as Jeff Beck. None of them changed and evolved and improved over the course of their career as Jeff Beck. And he was still improving. He was never satisfied, and he was always pushing himself to get better. There is no contemporary or current guitarist who continually developed and improved over their career like Jeff Beck. Nobody who went from this Don't call me, baby, I'll call you To this to the point where he was playing radically different and better in his 70s than he did in his 20s. It's amazing. Nobody could touch that technique. He was one of a kind. There are new generations of brilliant guitarists, from Bumblefoot to Buckethead, players like Omar Garcia Lopez, Tosin Abasi, Pliny, Rabia Massad, 
They are all brilliant players at the top of their game. But we'll see, when they're in their 70s, will their playing have evolved and deepened as much as Jeff Beck's? Thanks for joining me for this special episode looking at the career of Jeff Beck. This is the longest episode we've ever done on this show, but I can't think of anyone more worthy of it than Jeff Beck. So thanks for hanging in there with me. Trust me when I say we've just scratched the surface of his work. Go pick up some of his albums. A great place to start is the Live at Ronnie Scott's album. There's also a great documentary called Still on the Run, which I highly recommend. As you can imagine, Jeff was a popular subject of all of the guitar magazines, magazines like Guitar Player, Guitar One, Guitar for the Practicing Musician. He was the featured cover story on at least eight issues of Guitar Player magazine alone, and I read every single one that I could find for research for this episode. So thanks to the many writers and editors who put those articles and magazines together over the years, they were an invaluable resource in putting this episode together. I'll be back in two weeks with another new episode. Thanks for being a part of the last 150 shows. And if that's not enough, you'll find even more shows on the Pantheon Podcast Network, enough to satisfy any music junkie. And just one more thing. I've got a new way that you can support this show while showing everyone the artists that matter to you. Now, if you've seen any of those little videos that I do to promote this podcast, then you've seen that I own at least one t-shirt for almost every artist that's been featured on this show. That's a lot, but I love my t-shirts and I love standing up and standing out for my favorite bands. A great place to get your own t-shirts is Old Glory. Now, why would I recommend them? Well, for one, because they're based here in New England. They're in Connecticut, a few hours from where I live. And because they sell licensed merch, which means that the bands get paid. A lot of the stuff you find out there on the internet isn't legit. This stuff is. And if you use our brand new discount code, this show gets a little share too. So support the bands that you love and this podcast by going to oldglory.com and using the discount code love that song you'll get 15% off free shipping and you'll be supporting the show the discount code is love that song i'll put it in the show notes but it's super easy to use you just go to oldglory.com order whatever cool stuff you want use the discount code love that song save 15% and you'll help out the show Thanks. Please keep in touch. And until the next time, I'll leave you with one final track. This is from the aforementioned Live at Ronnie Scott's album. It's the live version of Jeff playing Where Were You. This is how he closed that show, and it's a fitting way to close out this episode. Jennifer Batten described this as basically impossible. It's an impossible tune. Well, impossible for anyone except Jeff Beck.
Once again, I can't thank you enough for coming out. Thanks. Hope to see you again sometime.